The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. So wrote St. Paul in his second letter to the people of Corinth in the first century of the Common Era, and it signals from the earliest days the way in which Christians understood the living God. Today is Trinity Sunday. While the doctrine of the Holy Trinity was not established by the early Church and is not formulated in the New Testament, the unique Trinitarian structure of Christian theology was there from the beginning and separated Christianity from the simple monotheism of Judaism. In the early Church, this Sunday was simply designated as the eighth day of the Octave of Pentecost, or Whitson as it was known. But medieval thinkers set it apart as a day of reflection on the Trinity. The Trinity has, fa has fascinated mystics and theologians over the centuries, and many have been enriched by contemplating it. But it is a doctrine that is often difficult and may seem incomprehensible to many Christians. St. Patrick explained it by holding up the three leaves of a shamrock, which has the same stem. And other religious symbolists have depicted it as the three sides of a triangle. You may have seen those on church windows. People have gone to great lengths to try to give helpful images. I know of one seminary professor who tried to juggle three oranges to illustrate the round dance of the Trinity. And if I remember correctly, he managed to keep them going in a circle fairly well. As a mystery, it is often elusive. But I think that the real nature of the Trinity is best understood as the theologian Elizabeth Johnson instructs if we go back to the New Testament and the experiences of the first Christians. As you know, the first Christians were Jews who knew God as the one who appeared to Moses in the burning bush and had brought them out of slavery in Egypt and had given them the law on Mount Sinai. They understood God as both a mighty force and a still small voice and as one who cared for them, watched over them, and had made them God's own people. Then these first century Jews encountered Jesus of Nazareth, and he was unlike any person they had ever met. He spoke with authority and intimate knowledge of the God they had worshipped, and his words contained wisdom that echoed, enriched, and pushed farther their beloved scriptures. And he did deeds of power that astonished his followers. People like the Pharisee Nicodemus ask where he got the spirit he had. His presence was so unusual and seemed out of reach to ordinary people. And so after his excruciating death and amazing resurrection, the people realized they had actually encountered God in the flesh, in the person of Jesus. And then there was the experience of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was palpable among the followers of Jesus. Ordinary people were empowered with gifts beyond their usual scope. They could communicate as never before, and they could envision a future that had been distinctly out of reach. Suddenly, they were a mobilized people with energy and drive to share the good news that had opened and changed their lives. To the early church, all three experiences were real, strong, memorable experiences of God. And so when Paul spoke of the love of God 
they'd experienced that love in their worship and festivals, in their community and in their identity as people of God. And when Paul spoke of the grace of Jesus Christ, they had experienced the charism and healing gift of the Savior. They had known him or known people who had. And when Paul spoke of the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, they remembered the experience of Pentecost, which continued to infuse the church with a new and holy calling. And it was all the experience of one God that came through three different channels. Several centuries before the Trinity was set set into creedal form as an article of belief, it was an experienced reality. Our first lesson is from the book of Proverbs, and in it we hear the voice of wisdom speak. Now, as we begin to look at wisdom, we need to understand that the concept of wisdom is three distinct things in this context. First, it is a group of sacred writings, notably Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes in the Hebrew Bible, and Sirach and the wisdom of Solomon in the Apocrypha. Second, wisdom is understood as a collection of teachings, teachings about how to live, and a teacher of wisdom is known as a sage. And then to further complicate matters, there are two types of wisdom that are taught, conventional and alternative. Conventional wisdom embodies the central values of a culture, aphorisms such as, the early bird catches the worm, and you will reap what you sow. Tell us who we are and serve to reinforce conformity and the status quo. They instruct us toward success in our culture. But the other kind of wisdom is the wisdom Jesus taught. It's alternative and subversive. It seeks to change our behavior, to crack open and wake our minds, and even break our hearts. It confuses and challenges us to think and act outside the box. Turn the other cheek. Blessed are those who mourn. Enter by the narrow gate. Call no man on earth your father. Let the dead bury the dead. We're all instructions to challenge the values of Jesus' culture, and they continue to challenge our culture today. To those pursuing the route of conventional wisdom, Jesus made no sense and was considered offensive and threatening. And that remains the case today, but with the additional adjective of irrelevant. The third aspect of wisdom that's important in our context today is that in Judaism, wisdom is personified. It's personified in female form as the wisdom woman. Consistent with her gender, the Hebrew word for wisdom, chokmah, is feminine, and the Greek word for wisdom is Sophia. Since Sophia is also a woman's name, I will refer to the speaker of wisdom as Sophia. In our first lesson, she says, The Lord created me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of long ago. Ages ago I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. Sophia was with God at the beginning and participated in God's creative work. She continues, I was beside him like a master worker, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, 
rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the human race. Sophia is closely associated with God's playful and delightful work of creating the world, and there are times when she is indistinguishable from God in terms of the functions and qualities ascribed to her. It's very interesting that the followers of Jesus saw him as an extraordinary teacher of wisdom and then went on to view him as embodying the wisdom or Sophia of God. There are several passages in the Gospels that indicate this. In our passage from Proverbs, we see God's active engagement with the world. But somehow that energy and engagement did not translate into our formulation and formation of the theology of the Trinity. Instead, we often have imagery that appears fixed and even beyond human reach. St. Paul, writing to Rome, speaks of the grace of Jesus, which has justified us by faith alone. In other words, he speaks of our acceptance right now without the need for additional works. He speaks of how the Trinity works in our lives, that Christ's grace and God's love come to us through the Holy Spirit. It is another image of the dynamism of the Trinity at work in our lives. In our gospel lesson from John, Jesus speaks to his disciples before the crucifixion, and so he tells them that there are things they cannot yet bear to know. Then he says, When the Spirit of truth comes, the Spirit will guide you into all the truth, for the Spirit will not speak on the Spirit's own, but will speak whatever is heard, and the Spirit will declare to you the things that are to come. The Spirit will glorify me because the Spirit will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. The Holy Spirit is the same Spirit of truth, and Jesus illustrates how the triune God is one God that is at the same time a communion of being. The Spirit is our guide, but that Spirit speaks what comes from God through Christ. It is all one God. And so we come back to where we began, to words and images seeking to help us understand this elusive mystery, which I contend is still best understood from our own lived experiences. Nonetheless, I will share some that may enrich your own thinking. Theologian Elizabeth Johnson suggests a triple helix since it is the most fruitfully life-giving shape in the natural world. She imagines it as combining and recombining to bring forth, healing and repairing, and creating ever new forms at the heart of the universe. Taking a lead from the Jewish theologian Martin Buber, Herbert Mullen uses communications theory to illuminate divine reality as the I, thou, and we of love. Presbyterian professor at Yale Divinity School, Letty Russell, views the Trinity as creator, liberator, and advocate who call us into partnership for the care of the world. And the ever-relevant Hildegard of Bingen, 12th century visionary and theologian, described the Trinity as a brightness, a flashing forth, and a fire. However you understand the Trinity, remember, it is essentially a relationship 
a conversation and an exchange that ever invites you to join in. I'll conclude with my favorite trio of images, which is not only theologically astute, but also appropriate for this spring day, that of Emily Dickinson, 19th century American poet, who made her own doxology in the name of the bee, the butterfly, and the breeze. Amen.